Hello and welcome to Conversations in Clean Tech, the podcast that celebrates the clean tech industry and the people that power it, brought to you by Brightsmith. I'm your host, Jenny Gladman, and in this sixth season, we delve deeper into the world of clean tech startups and their founders, from inspiring stories and words of wisdom to the toughest challenges. You can expect to learn about how these pioneering startups and the founders at their helm are propelling us towards a cleaner, greener tomorrow. In addition, they'll be offering you timeless teachings to enlighten, engage, and inspire everyone, everywhere to live their purpose. So today's guest has lived his life to the fullest, is extremely passionate about nature, loves technology, and is 100% committed to being part of the solution. It's my great pleasure to welcome founder of Swedish battery company, Kling Systems, William Berg. William, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. That's a very kind intro. (laughs) Well, I'm going to hand it straight back to you to give a bit more of an intro. I like to to give people the highlights, but um, yeah, it'd be great to hear a little bit more about you. You mentioned the passion for the environment and climate, which is very true. As we talked about earlier, I, I did some time in Hawaii studying environmental science. It was it was there I found the, the bigger, you know, passion for the bigger problem, which is like climate change and the energy's position in that. And the bigger solutions are around how to make a sustainable energy system. And with renewables, with electric mobility, much, if not all, is powered by batteries. So I'm trying to figure out how do we make batteries sustainable uh, in the long term. So that's what I'm really, really keen to do. And I think it's a lot about um, figuring out how circularity is uh, playing into that. And uh, in the la- for the last three years, it's about figuring out how does circularity work? And it turns out to be an entirely different species to typical linear um, value chains or economies. So that's, it's been a, it's been a ride. <laughs> And certainly not a small problem to be looking at, but one that could have a massive, massive impact once it's got, once it's right. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The cool thing with, I'm just going to jump straight in, but the cool thing with batteries is, to the best of my understanding, it's the first time where we're not burning and consuming our energy carriers. Like we've always burned fuel for energy. And in this case, we can just charge whatever carries energy and then they degrade of course things degrade but it doesn't vanish it's not burned so it gives this opportunity of you know recycling and reusing the energy carrier and perhaps it's the biggest and most important opportunity for establishing a circular economy ever and i think it's quite important to uh, to make it work and it's um yeah it's driven by um, functioning ecosystems and networks and it depends on much more collaboration than ever before and transparency and you know collaborations has been buzzwords and it's often easier said than done but for for um, enabling circular like economies it just needs to happen and um, for for, for partnerships and, and, and collaborations to work, there has to be incentives in place uh, more than just do good and, and goodwill. 
Um, so yeah, wh what we're trying to do at Kling is figuring out how are those incentives working? How do we make sure that everyone benefits for from par participating in, in recycling and in reuse and repurposing? I mean, it's a, it's a great mission. Um, I, before we go too deep into, um, into batteries, which we certainly will, I want to, uh, to draw it back to something you touched on very, very briefly, but I think it's a really interesting thing and an amazing opportunity that you had to go and study in Hawaii. And I think perhaps if you live in the US, it doesn't seem quite as glamorous, but for those of us um, in Europe, I think having the opportunity to study in Hawaii is incredible. I know you had a, a cool reason for going there. So you want to share that with us? So I was um, playing a lot of um, football, which is in the US soccer. Um, <laughs> it's weird, but it, it uh, enabled a, a scholarship and uh, to go there and study. So when going there, I was mostly passionate about ocean. So oceanography and how the underworld is looking and working. And so, yeah, I went there for environment and it, because it was cool, you know, Hawaii is <laughs> it's pretty exciting. Um, um, soccer enabled uh, enabled it. And um, while there, I also kind of developed a passion for free diving and snorting and being underwater um, as much as possible. So me and my roommate, Nicholas, we had these competitions when we were studying, <laughs> we're just holding our breaths like every day, all, all the time we we're studying together. And yeah, it's uh, holding breaths, which also kind of moved into like, how do you keep calm? How do you kind of control your mind and your breath and it was early days for another passion which would be which would become you know, meditation and and like more towards that side of like yeah what is mind what is body yeah it's amazing i think um we've talked about this before i'm an underwater person but with a tank but being underwater generally is <laughs> is very meditative alert, like on its own because you've done a lot of scuba diving a lot of scuba diving not as much in recent years but i um yeah i spent almost five years teaching scuba diving so it was a a very different life that i had back then i would say from spending time with three divers the the meditation side and the yoga and the breath work and the um the, the calm that's needed in your brain to kind of override your natural impulses to breathe is, is, a, is a different level. When you're two, three, four minutes in, you, you realize what's important. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Oxygen. Uh, <laughs> Oxygen is becoming like your, your priorities are, <laughs> are very easy to, to figure out. Oxygen is one. And uh, three, four minutes in, I'm not meant, like saying in water, but like practicing like, in water would be maybe one or two minutes. Um, but uh, yeah, touching on five minutes of, and practicing or, or lying in a pool, it's uh, becoming, yeah, oxygen is, it's easy to do your priorities. Yeah. <laughs> um, and speaking of, so I know you spent a year out there. What brought you back to Sweden? Several things. I found a wider interest in energy so and i was studying environmental science wasn't really energy focused um also more that the big solutions are in renewables i moved back home to mechanical engineering with a master's in energy uh, technologies another thing it's very very expensive to study in the us at home it's free you get paid for studying so it's the opposite so 
various things uh, brought me back, but biggest one is, yeah, it, it needs to be a lot of engineering solutions to get like a new energy system in place. And I think very often on this, um, on this show, we end up talking about education and the importance of education, not just at a higher level, but people really understanding the problem and educating the next generation. But um, I think the, the Scandinavian education system is, is just incredible compared to almost every other country in the world. Like, how do you feel that benefits the people there? People can try a lot of different things. It's very easy to sign up to different courses and universities. I was at some point studying at two different universities at the same time for just why not? And it, you know, gives an opportunity to, to try things out and find your own interest. So you can try things out in, and, and at the same time, go pretty deep from my experience in the US is that you go pretty wide with your one education, you start, you study philosophy and you study, um, like pretty broad stuff in the very beginning to find out what you want to do. And then, and then you specialize later was here. You can kind of specialize earlier and then just switch if you don't like at the same time. Yeah. My view of like the, the best universities like in the U S are the best, you don't know, I did a half a year in uh, Munich at TU technical university of Munich as well, where I found that they have I mean, maybe a more German approach on, on the school and, and so on, but, uh, they also have a very, very, very high level of education because they work so closely with industry. I don't see the same thing in Sweden. Um, it's quite separate between school and university, uh, like university and, and industry was in, at least at, uh, in Munich, the industry was very close. They were in the classrooms. You did projects with, um, companies and, um, there was so much more, yeah, touch points between university and companies and, and Tuma has one of the you know biggest pool of spin out companies and it's such a big hub for innovation and startups and they have Antoniumatum, which is also a big VC. It's like another approach to also, you know, getting ideas and, and projects and startups out of university, which I'm not seeing in, in Sweden, but it's getting better, but what they're doing at Tum is, is really, really good. Yeah, fascinating. And I think, but just from a general accessibility perspective, like uh, university is becoming less accessible in some countries. And I think the the fact that, yeah, you, as you mentioned, not only is it is it free, you, you get supported by your government to study is amazing. You studied in the UK, right? How was it there? I studied in the UK before it was expensive, but that's a sign of my age. <laughs> Um, so yeah, now, now it's, it's extremely expensive to study here. Um, and there's, there's very, there, there are loans from the government, but there's, there's not grants for the government for most people. Um, so it's, it's actually becoming less and less viable for lots of people based on the cost of living and the, the amount of debt that people leave university with. There's a counter part to this that is so much easier to educate yourself through internet and other, like it's, it's so much information out there. And so you could basically teach yourself. You don't, you wouldn't really need a university, but what you get through a university is peers, friends, network, an association to, to a brand, a school. It's something to put on a CV. It's so much like soft values from, from universities. Yeah. So yeah, I would, I was, I mean, I think a lot around universities and why you need, why you need them. And 
like taking it to a very like personal practical way now is that cling is very <laughs> very close to like to our university it's a lot of people who's been studying there um and you know friends of friends it starts at the university and you, it's a it's a great pool of like talent um, which you find through universities that you don't find in the same way from from you know self-taught people mm-hmm. and speaking of how cling was born can you tell us that story in terms of the kind of from the motivation to the idea to the infancy of the business. So I started um, my master's in energy technologies, focusing on renewables. Um, I look back at my uh, notebooks, saying that I just want, I just had long lists of solar companies and wind companies, and was just trying to figure out wind or solar. Um, but in parallel to to my studies, I was in a project called Formula Student. Um, in the US, it's called Formula SA, and I did three years there and we only had a combustion vehicle. So for what Formula is, is like there's Formula One, Formula Two, Formula, you know, three, four, five, six, and there's Formula Student, um, where you're with your, you know, peers designing or concepting, designing, building, and then actually racing with a Formula type racing car against other universities. And so it's this one-year project from zero to a full um, racing car that you take on to, uh, to, to race tracks. You go to Hockenheim Ring in Germany or you go to Silverstone in the, in the UK or, or, or just around the world, which is really cool. You get to build something out of nothing and or the nothing is the, uh, the information transferred from previous years. Anyway, so in my third year, um, a couple of friends and I decided to uh, found the first electric uh, racing team and the first car. And uh, it starts with the battery. The battery needs to be, it's the core of, of an electric vehicle. Um, so we designed and thought how, it, you know, how much energy is there needed and started to design and came to all of these issues on how do you pack cells? Like which cells should you use? And should you allow pouch cells to flex or not? It's like very technical stuff. And we didn't know where to, where to, to look for, for guidance, but we found Northvolt, which was then a very early company. So this was in 2018, which led to a, uh, an internship at Northvolt in 2019. Um, and there, the role was to, to work with design for recycling. So I had had pretty much already drank the Kool-Aid for, for batteries while at Northvolt in 2019. Batteries just became like it. It's the next big solution for renewable, enabling renewables, enabling electric mobility. But also clear that batteries comes with so many different problems. Supply chains are terrible. It's it's sad to see the impact of batteries throughout their value chain. They're amazing in cars and amazing in energy storage, but the pains and emissions and just the troubles throughout the value chain is is terrible and so designing for recycling um, opened up this new world that battery circularity or battery sustainability is is paramount is like the most important thing i can put my time into because if we don't we're 
running the risk of solving one problem with another, like replacing fossil fuels with something that's maybe not equally, but like also very bad. And so in after that, I wrote my master thesis at there on the recycling side, looking at how do you, how do you recycle? And then how do you source batteries for recycling? And it turns out that sourcing batteries for recycling is potentially the biggest challenge for circularity because where do batteries go? Where do they reach end of life? You know, it's in people's drawers and how do you collect those? Or if it's in cars, where do cars reach end of life? At car dismantlers and scrapyards and in workshops. And then how do you get those batteries to recycling? And the challenge here is the fact that batteries have a dual value base. It's both material value and energy value. And they can be, sometimes energy value can be higher because you can reuse a battery or otherwise it's the material value and then it should go to recycling. But an owner of this battery has this unknown value. You don't know if it's, it should go to reuse or recycling. So you keep it until you figure it out. And that's the keeping of just storing batteries is delaying the time for them to get to recycling. So the, the idea is to just bridge the gap of supply and demand of used batteries, which is yeah, just there to enable reuse, enable repurposing, enable recyclers. So, um, yeah, it's been, it's been a long ride in trying to figure out how to bridge the gap of supply and demand of batteries and to make this even more, you know, quirky, it started to cling was actually in the beginning, a box designing company. We, we, we were in, we designed a box that was big enough for a Tesla battery because there weren't one. So, so we can, yeah, beginning to be a box designing company because there weren't enough boxes to just move batteries. That was the biggest pain point because I was on overlooking into logistics. It was like, where do we find a box that is big enough and that is compliant to ship hazardous goods? Um, so designing a box and then figuring out that probably it's not the box that is the biggest problem, but actually where should the boxes go? Like, where are the batteries? Um, and so that was the, the founding story. That was in 2020. And I was still doing my thesis. So it started halfway through my thesis, working with Kling, working with the, uh, writing the thesis. And then when the thesis was done, I started full-time with, with Kling. So it's yeah, founded in, in May and I started full-time in October of 2020. And how many people are you now? Roughly 15 and going at towards 20 in uh, a couple of months. Which is great progress. Must be um, nice to sit back and kind of see the team and how they work together and how they function. Maybe not sitting back. <laughs> yeah. yeah, sometimes you have to step back and look. And most of the time, I know you're right in the middle. But it's, uh, yeah, I, I, I took some bullets on for this conversation. And team is maybe the, the thing that I've underestimated my interest for uh, going into this and, and the challenge in. It's so much fun to see how a team is formed. And it's so weird, really, to have first an idea and you think how you know you how to do it, but you need people to continue thinking for solutions and executing. And then 
like how to first find on competence like you need a person to know what to do but people come with personalities which is as, a, as an engineer you're like oh that's a thing people are people and so you hire for a role um, in the beginning but then you hire for for a team and much more about like you know what people should be solving this problem um, rather than what competence should and that was a big <clears throat> and long learning in in terms of designing teams rather than designing roles and uh, it's something i now find very very interesting how to design teams rather than how to design kind of positions or roles yeah i think even once you've done it the psychology of how to keep that team motivated and working together and then you have to add to it and that changes the dynamic it never it never stands still it, it's always fluid changing and moving and you know, people have private lives that also should be taken into consideration and uh, they're all coming from different backgrounds and are in different phases of their lives sometimes you know in the beginning of career sometimes in the end of the career or in the middle of the career career and they have vastly different like motivations and need different type of incentives and it's a big big puzzle like this is what you do <laughs> so <laughs> It is, but it's also, it's it, it never stops being a puzzle for us either internally. Um, and it is, for me, it's always the most fascinating bit of an organization. And I always kind of think back to those examples of like super high performing teams. And you touched on Formula One earlier, with all of the formulas. And yes, you have the driver who's the star, who everybody knows their name, but without every single person acting at the highest level, like the the repercussions of someone doing their job wrong are so huge and it's that how do you get everybody totally totally committed to the same mission and the same quality standards the same expectations and like you said we're not we're not a production line of robots people have different things going on in their life and sometimes it's really hard to shut down one bit of your brain and and open up another and yeah and another another analogy is going back to football which would be like if a, if the goalkeeper makes a mistake it's very obvious and it's a direct hit you they score a goal while if the forward is making a mistake it doesn't really you know you don't see the immediate um, problems from that and it's the same thing here and what would have you know what we've been exploring is like if like i have seen sales as being the forwards and then everyone is like I've really considered that pretty much in, in, in the last year, which is like sales doesn't always have to be the forwards. It's really, and I think it's the, just the wrong analogy of having someone, you know, first, it needs to be the entire team that is kind of in, in unison developing something. And I, I don't really know what the next analogy would be than to have a, a football team with forwards and, and goalies, but it needs to be something else where everyone's accountable. Because it's just, you know, inefficient to have, you know, blame on on the sales team when it goes bad, but also that they get all the credits for when it goes well, when it's really, it, it's really a team effort. But I think you also mentioned a really key word there is blame. And I think it's something that's very hard to avoid in your own brain. But once you show it, it has such negative 
repercussions because I think in my experience, almost every good startup has a, a culture of feedback um, and feedback, not just in terms of negative feedback, but all aspects of feedback and, and all members of the team top to bottom, welcoming that feedback, actioning the feedback and in times challenging the feedback, but in a, in a positive way. And I think the second that there's um, there's blame, um, that feedback culture can can get really stifled. Um, and when that happens, you often find that um, there's sort of the the positive feeling that there is in a startup, and that kind of culture of challenge starts to get lost, and then innovation declines. So it's it's just it's such a um, a difficult seesaw pivot. I'm doing it with my hands. Can't find the right word. <laughs> um, but I guess just just talking about challenges generally. Um, I know you're you're someone that that likes to speak very honestly, not someone that wants to sugarcoat the life of a founder. Because I think, you know, everybody that has done it, um, and whether they're still doing it, whether they're not doing it anymore, will tell you it's it's really challenging. There's a lot of sacrifices that you make. But I think particularly as a first time founder, there's there's naivety that you have when you come into it that sometimes the challenges are a bit more expect, unexpected than they might be. Like what are the what are the biggest challenges outside of people that you faced? Starting with naivety, I think it's uh, it's good to have uh, to be naive in this in this world. Uh, it's too many challenges. <laughs> and if you would know of them in, in the beginning, you would you would you would uh, probably hesitate to start. Life as a founder is um, a life of giving away your baby slowly or quickly. It's you know something I've been dreaming about and living like for for you know four years or longer, and for it to be able to you know be reality, you must um, give it away. You must have a team that takes it and makes it to their own. It has to be their own. They have to have their own ideas shining through. And it's going to be different to what I imagined or any other founder imagined. And it just has to be that way. Because otherwise, you're just, in, you know, you're missing out on all the good ideas from the team. But also, you know, it's just a motivation for anyone to do anything. It needs to be their own. Um, so it's a big, you know, giving away your thing and seeing it being something else and that's a big challenge you think it should be one way and um <laughs> you, you know it's the best way it's you know it's, it needs to be looking like this it has to work like that and then you see someone else doing something different in their own way and you know they're actually the ones doing it so it should be their thing so yeah that's an exercise that i wasn't um expecting which is yeah it's it's humbling you, yeah, yeah, giving away what you hold most dear. Secondly, yeah, it's also quite glamorous, especially in these days. It's so much support for startups. So many people who want to help out. It's quite amazing, actually, that there's so many incubators and accelerators and investors who dare to believe in ideas with one founder or two founders or like just some you know young i was 24 it's like would, how would anyone ever you know you know dare to put you know a student I was still studying um into an incubator 
and um, that's it's quite cool and it's it's because yeah it's currently I don't know if it's always ha has been or it's going to be but this environment of innovation is is cool we need to support and um, you meet a lot of interesting people it's like a, you, you meet like just having this conversation right now it's like you meet you get to say things you get to uh, you have you get you know you build your own platform in terms of just your ideas coming through and that's pretty cool and it should be encouraging for more people to start their own thing and not only seeing that it's oh it's taking so much time you have to disregard family and friends and and time off no it's also a lot of fun you meet so many people um so i can <laughs> i can highly recommend being a founder and, and also Maybe it's a Swedish culture. I, I don't really know, but taking time off is something that um, that we do. Our COO came from from Volvo Cars. He was previously leading role or head for remanufacturing of Volvo Cars uh, batteries. And he'd been there for 34 years. <laughs> so it's a, it's a veteran in the game. He set an early culture at Kling that you know, rest and vacations is is very important. You should not work weekends, you should take time off. Um, so so that's something I'm quite proud of or happy about that we have at, at Kling, a culture of taking time off. And we see results, like when people come back, they're so much more energized and ready. I, I feel now I'm depleted, I need to, it's been a long spring and summer and actually this is my last day before taking two weeks uh, off and everyone knows you need to you need to to take time off it's a misconception like founders work all day all night all the time it's like no it's just people as well and yeah we need to sleep <laughs> no i think that's that's totally true and i i'm very much with you on that i think i i hugely strive for the work-life balance um, but I would say it's not not necessarily reflected in startups the world over, and I think particularly the U.S. startup culture is is more intense um, than others. But no, I think you, the the Swedish have a good balance, and the fact that nine times out of ten you can't get hold of anyone in Sweden in the whole month of July, I think, is a fantastic thing. <laughs> you, you should see Stockholm now; it's empty, no one yeah. here, uh, and. Uh, yeah, they're all away. Fantastic. And you can walk the streets up and down. There's no cars. <laughs> That's nice. Nice clean air. Um, and speaking of, I guess, time off and resetting and refocusing and sort of supporting your mind, what else do you do? Um, we touched on the kind of meditation and freediving, but is there anything else that you feel is like really important to you to to keep that positive mindset and also to have, um, you know, a dual focus in life. So it's not all about work. Sometimes I'm thinking about going back to water, being underwater or above. When you go into like focus mode, heads down operations, it's difficult to go up for air or look far. You look a week ahead, a month ahead, you do planning and you do, you know, just execution, execution. And, and I've been underwater for you know, half a year it's been just doing 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 and now when we've onboarded uh yeah we've grown the team we were six people going into the year and uh, we're now more and, and now the team is in place and everyone's knowing what they're doing it's i can finally um have time to look up and uh, 
So what I do for like work-life balance is uh, giving time to look up and look far and seeing, you know, how can, what would a good future look like? I, I, I like that's uh, my hobby of like, what's a good system? You know, how do we build a good society? How do we have a system that's actually sustainable to its full uh, meaning? Something that's sustainable and is resilient and is working and is fair. And the easiest way to breach and get through the water surface is to travel, to see new cultures, new areas, new people. Um, it's easy to um, really live in a bubble and just, you know, staying in the same place. So with traveling um, is you know, the best way of breaching, breaching the surface. On that note, we actually have uh, some guiding words that we have in our onboarding that I think are kind of important to our culture and, and to the people at Kling that I'm going to read to you. You haven't, <laughs> you haven't been prepared for this, but we have something we call the, the, the way of Kling, which is encouraging everyone to daring to look up and to breach and not always staying underwater. And it goes like this, to adventure beyond horizons and to explore off the beaten path, to take lead, to trust in our significance in this world and our power to improve it, to risk for the potential of prosperity, for fairness, for the unknown. That is the way of claim. And it should um, encourage everyone to really feel empowered that we can change stuff like the world doesn't have to look the way it looks today there's no natural laws that forces us to have a society that you know is looking the way it's looking today and it's um it requires a team a full team really believes that can look different to to make a, a, a difference and it's pretty much a mindset you don't you just have to you know, believe in that you can make a difference and you can because everyone does every single day. Everyone is contributing to, to something. And if you can steer that towards something better, it's going to happen regardless. And so that's, yeah, my, my way of keeping, <laughs> keeping saying is to trying to bridge seeing far. Oh, I like that. Um, and you touched on a word there, and I think this will bring us to the end of the conversation, but um, when we were speaking uh, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about resilience and you mentioned that word again. Um, and you you educated me on kind of a way of thinking that I hadn't thought about before. Um, so it's, I guess, in some ways feels slightly negative, but also there's a, there's a positive that came out of it for me in terms of my way of thinking. So I wonder if you can leave our listeners on that sort of, of resilience and not giving up the fight for change, but also having some sense of acceptance on, on how we live with it. So there's this institute in Stockholm called Stockholm Resilience Center, um, led by um, a guy called Johan Rockström. He's, um, he's one of the, I would say, leading figures in climate change. And uh, um, his thoughts and ideas are adopted very much by the IPCC and, and various other reports in our way to kind of fight climate change. and. The, the institute is not called Stockholm Sustainability Institute, but Stockholm Resilience Institute. And I think it's 
it could be seen in a negative way that okay we've given up the fight we're now only going to go into defense we're going to build walls we're going to build um, higher walls toward towards water with rising seas and we're going to go into uh, digging deeper wells to reach water etc but it can be spun in a very very positive way um, in terms of the the world will always change and people are a part of nature we're not aliens coming here um, we every every animal is making an impact humans are making a very big impact and far bigger than we should and we need to uh, change things to make it uh, sustainable um, but it's one way to think about it is to build things that makes our environment and our cultures and our economies resilient to change that we can pass through and change is is okay we just need to be able to deal with change change is going to happen regardless and and there's a lot of things to kind of get and and a peace of mind and a a long-termism um quoting will mccaskill in terms of resilience we can build a resilient economy a resilient energy system a resilient society and i think that gives trust in the fact that we can do good well thank you for sharing that with the listeners yeah i found it fascinating and went away and did a bit more reading around it and i think it is a it's a really positive way to think about the future um so thank you for that thank you for sharing the insights around your experiences today and thank you for taking the leap um particularly at such a young age it is a it's a brave thing to do to be starting your own business um without huge amounts of experience and it sounds like it's um it's certainly paid off to date so um yeah, well done. Um, we wish you every success with Kling um, and with whatever else you go on to do in the future. Um, and yeah, we'll be watching closely. <laughs> we'll, we'll stay in touch. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolute pleasure.